0: Welcome to the Waves of Change podcast, conversations on human centered change. We believe in the power of stories to build bridges and break walls, one story at a time. Today's guest, Neil Hawkes, is a pioneer in values based education. He is an educational leader and thinker who knows how to take the lid off a pupil's potential. I've known Neil for over 20 years, and I continue to be inspired by his passion to create values-based education and school cultures where everyone thrives. Neil's commitment for values-based leadership is now making waves in the business world. Let's dive into Neil's story. Welcome, Neil, to the Waves of Change podcast. Thank you, Stephen. it's a great honor and privilege to be here with you. And and you're in the UK this morning in the East Midlands in Rutland. I am indeed, and it's a beautiful morning uh, here.
1: And so it's uh, yeah, I'm looking at a wonderful scene outside my study window of uh, a beautiful reservoir and the fields around and the trees. Um, it's a a lovely nature reserve, and uh, my area is particularly well-known because it was the first place in England where ospreys were reintroduced. So we have now, I think, 16 pairs of uh, osprey that come here for the the summer and then they disappear in the winter and go back to Africa. So we're always excited to see these beautiful, beautiful birds circling majestically over our house. It's one of those uplifting spiritual moments that uh, fills us with great joy.
0: Lovely. I, I can feel your deep love for nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in your voice, and and thanks so much for being with us today. And and really, what I'd love to know is the the waves of change. What does that mean for you?
1: Waves of change. Um, I've always been very conscious of change and how life continually changes as we flow through it. Um, Many years ago, I uh, was teaching about leadership, and I was really thinking about leadership. And I came across uh, the wave theory, which is really well known, but it it really affected me at the time and has guided some of my thinking over the years. And uh, the particular point uh, that I always used to stress was that we get on a wave. which can be a wave of life. We perhaps get get a relationship, or at work we join a new job company, and uh, the wave often is in ascendance. You know, things are getting good. Everything's good. Relationships are fantastic, and uh, the company is doing well, and uh, everything seems marvellous. But in wave theory, uh, that doesn't last uh, unless you are, are aware to really regenerate constantly uh, your opportunities. People often say, oh, you have lots of luck, but sometimes you've got to make luck happen. And it's wave theory that can help you. There's a particular point, as listeners might know, and uh, it's just before the crest of a wave. It's often referred to as the perturbation point. And that's the point where we need to really be aware of is this the wave that's, you know, going places? What are we going to do? You, you sense that you're at the crest of the wave, but that's the point where you either need to get off and start a new wave and get on a new wave, or you stay with that wave and uh, really put extra efforts to regenerate uh, that. Um, so that I think that's a really useful theory, and it's it's guided me. I, I once left a job um, which... The, the, the circumstances were really successful. And I announced that I was leaving. And they said, Neil, why are you leaving? And and really I, I I didn't go into the detail with people, but it was it was to do with the wave. I knew that I had to either put a lot of effort into regenerating or or things were going to go downhill. And at that point I thought it was right for someone else to come and to, develop the wave and not me so that's one issue with waves of change the other is that i was oh way time ago i read a book on holiday Uh, the family were in spain the kids were swimming in the swimming pool i can remember sitting beside the pool reading a book called the strategy of the dolphin and i think it was written by a man called cordis and others and It was quite a simple book, but profound in its message. And it was really about three creatures that live in the the ocean, sharks, carps, and dolphins. And without going into detail, the whole point was that one should, in the ocean of life, act like a dolphin. Because a dolphin can negotiate circumstances, adapt to change, and swim throughout the ocean where sharks come along and eat you up and only get what they need. And we've seen plenty of sharks in in the commercial world and everywhere. And the the carps are those, unfortunately, that allow the sharks to come along and eat them uh, because they sit back. And we we can see aspects of that in the world today where people are uh, conned by certain politicians uh, to... Buy into various theories. And those are the cops of life. And I'm always working to really turn them into dolphins. So waves of change, hugely important. And I think the awareness of change is the guiding principle and where one is in those changes. Fabulous. And I, I, I...
0: I love your in-depth um, thoughts about the waves of change, of which being a surfer myself I can really relate to. And and after years of surfing, um, you you are able to understand which wave you can go for and which wave you can't. And it's, yeah. it's a split-moment thing, but because you're so used to <clears throat> so many of the parameters, the pitch, the force, the volume, uh, the direction of the swell, it's very much an unconscious uh, competence, so to speak, yeah. that you've done after repetition. And do you think that, that that plays a part, that you you really know your context, you really know your environment because you've been there for a while? Is that what you're talking about, is knowing about which wave to get on, when to get off the wave? yes partly
1: uh i also think it's to do
0: with
1: yourself you know um i expect you like me have been had to sit lots of sort of tests and things to see what sort of personality you are <clears throat> myers-briggs and all those tests i've had to do in various jobs that i've done and uh um what is obvious in me, I, I once took a test and they said, this is impossible. You you can't have a score like this. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, uh, we haven't come across anybody that with your intuition capacity. And I said, well, that's really s- strange but true. Um, I've never put myself out as a great intellectual or thinker or anything like that. But I've had this incredible intuition. And... In way, uh, Riding Waves, I think intuition has been uh, an incredible help to me. Um, I've noticed in my own life, Stephen, uh, that whenever I've ignored my intuition and gone into logic and said, oh, no, no, it's... It, yeah, take no notice, Neil. Uh, then I've made some, uh, some errors uh, of judgment. And so I'm always very mindful of the role that intuition plays. And I do feel, Stephen, that in the world, intuition and that inner perception is not given enough uh, credence. Um, I think w- what happened, you know, um, if you go back to uh, pre industrial, just before the industrialization, you know, and, and you look at thinkers such as Descartes, for instance, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. He really kick-started in my view. Well, he wasn't the first, but he really sort of emphasised how we as human beings use cognitive ways of being. I think, therefore I am. And it dismissed really that sort of affective side of, of humanity. I'm sure he didn't mean to do that. But when we then saw the Industrial Revolution and how human beings were were emphasizing the uh, the cognitive side of the brain and we see the results of that even today. I think that uh, human beings are out of balance um, with those two aspects, the cognitive side of us and the affective side, the feelings, the, the intuition, that gut feeling that you have. And as an educator I'm always encouraging people to develop the arts dramas and uh, literature and to ensure that the 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 children the students develop holistically so that was a long answer to your question really but uh, I I do think you know I I envy you as a surfer you know I seem to not quite get it sometimes I I try very hard but I understand what you mean it's that that continual practice that gives you a a, a knowing too. And I think lots of skills can be developed in that way. I I, I remember bell ringing was one for me. I find it extremely difficult, but then suddenly things started to click and uh, I was able to do it.
0: Bell ringing?
1: Bell ringing in churches. Okay. In the UK, the, the churches, and they have these incredible old bell towers that go back to... 12th, 13th, 14th century, and these magnificent bells. And uh, you go into a bell tower and uh, learn to sort of, you know, pull the the chords, and each bell has a distinctive sound. So you can Uh have six bells, eight bells, and in a really large tower, you can go up to ten, although that's really rare. Um, So bell ringing, yeah, great, great hobby, but I don't do it now. uh, Yeah. I learned years ago.
0: And and, I, and and just staying on the intuition side of it is uh, at the same time you can build intuition. And so, what are the things that you've done that's helped you build your the strength of your intuition and trust in your intuition?
1: That's a very very interesting question. Um, I think it goes back really. Uh, before I sort of had any clue about uh, intuition, um, i um when I look back on my childhood, um, I obviously wasn't a high flyer at school. Um, I had a teacher called Mr. Smith. Uh, I remember when I was about seven, and uh, he was the new teacher of the class and uh his first thing he asked us to do, he said, well, I want you all to write a story about your summer holiday. And uh, so I thought, well, I can do that. So I started writing in this this exercise book. And it was an exercise book with lines at the bottom and a plain bit of page at the top. Some of you may remember those books. And uh, when you wrote the story, then you did a picture. And and I remember I wrote about a holiday that uh, my family had had in the south of England, there's a place called Highcliffe. And we'd had a marvellous holiday. Uh, My brother Morris went with us and uh, it was one of those joyous occasions. So I was really enthusiastic, sitting, writing for Mr. Smith. And then I finished, I was so excited. I wanted to show him what I had written and I lined up with everybody else in front of his desk. And this this guy, and can you picture someone with pince-nez glasses and looking over them? There was this incredible pause as he looked at my work, and then he looked at me and he tutted, you know, just like that, and he looked at me and he said, you'll never be a writer as long as you live. Your brother Morris was in my class and he couldn't write either. And then he clipped me around the ear and he said, get down to your place and do it again and that really really disturbed me as a child that that putting down uh, that that horrible feeling and and that really led to me really thinking that i wasn't any good at school and uh, i started then daydreaming and i can remember a lot of my primary years i used to look out of the window and often <laughs> bought rubber or something thrown at me waiting yeah but i i was away and i think I think Mr. Smith in some ways did me a favor because uh, I did go into an internal world. And although I didn't do very well uh, in the early days uh, academically, uh, I obviously was developing something um, which I now think is deeper. And uh, it gave me an internal uh, perspective, which I now find really useful. Um, Stephen, I spend uh, quite a, a lot of time and I have for many years in what's known as mindfulness or meditation or, or in the practices I talk about. We call it reflective practice, reflection, silent sitting. And I find those moments really do allow me to connect with the source, really, of that intuition and uh, really allows me to to ensure that my authentic side of my personality is dominant during the day one of the things i notice is that a lot of people um, you know have experiences of life and they find that some aspect of their personality is successful so they they water the seeds of that particular aspect of their personality and And that becomes dominant for them. So it might be an overbearing side of things, you know. Um, So I think what I learned uh, is that intuition, that feeling of, you know, just just go with how you really feel and uh, is really important. And I would love to see that more in leadership uh, today. Uh, One of the problems is that people are results driven and they they don't give time for that uh, quietness and stillness. I would love to see boardrooms start all their proceedings with two minutes of silence. I guarantee that if they did, they they would be more on task. People wouldn't bring uh, irrelevances to the, the meeting Uh, It would be more focused and and it would allow the authentic selves of the people around the table to actually um, be far more, uh, I want to say the word powerful, but that's not what I'm meaning really, Um, far more uh, accurate, yes, accurate in in what they are saying. And it also, too, helps you to actually speak your truth and not just go with what you are Thinking you should say. I think one one of just finally one of the, the aspects of as my own personality that I think didn't help me too much is I've got a very in psychological terms, a very strong please others driver. And sometimes in pleasing others, you're not accurate in what you should be saying and doing. So I've learned uh, over the years to just watch those aspects. So, intuition—being more aware of your internal world um, in a loving, careful
0: way—I think helps. Wow! And I, look, I think uh, we've just set a challenge for our listeners um, around the two-minute silence in their boardrooms, and um, <laughs> it'd be lo- it'd be a lovely uh, project to take on board uh, to encourage. Um, boardrooms to do such an activity. What, what I'm, I'm curious about, in addition to Mr. Smith, were there any other people in your life, because you're quite reflective um, and you enjoy that silent practice, who else was there in your early years or the early parts mm-hmm. of your career uh, who really influenced uh, your leadership style today?
1: Yeah, I, I can't let our chats go without mentioning my uh, paternal grandmother. Uh, mm-hmm. She lived with us uh, in our family and uh, my parents worked and uh, she no doubt was I- incredibly influential in uh, moulding how I am now. I often listen to myself and think, my gosh, that's grandmother talking. (laughs) And I'm sure listeners will have similar feelings about people who influence them as children. But uh, she was a Victorian. um, She was a stickler for behaviours. She always used to say things like, Neil, it is polite to listen to people, not just to say, talk about yourself. Uh, So she taught me things which later I described as things like batting it back in schools, you know. Often children don't know about batting it back. Uh, Batting it back means that if someone says, how are you today? Uh, You say, yes, I'm very well, thank you. So batting it back obviously is saying, and how are you? So it's simple manners. So she was a stickler for manners holding your eating utensils correctly in her Victorian way was something that's drilled into me. And I hear her voice now when I'm sitting with people who weren't brought up by grandma. Grandma, they're doing nothing wrong at all. They're not doing it as grandma would say. So she was incredibly influential. But going into my professional life as a a young teacher on final teaching practice, I spent a a whole academic term with... um, a great uh, head teacher or principal uh, who was called Peter Long and he was the principal of a a small country school and uh, I felt really privileged to work with Peter because he showed me how, how important it is to form relationships with children, if you are going to influence them, and help them to develop themselves, so you're empowering children. So Peter just demonstrated throughout the day this incredible facility to form relationships. I never heard him raise his voice. He was a deep listener. He just listened with his eyes and gave great attention. And you could see how this he was able to make this connection. You know, good communicators, good leaders are able to connect with other people. Uh, you know, Steve, when when people are, t- when you're talking with some people, you know they're not listening to you. They're thinking about what they're going to say next. And, and that is quite disturbing at one sense. And, and so a skill I've learned is to, to really listen to people and what they're saying and reflect on it. So those are two people who really influenced me, Grandma and uh, Peter Long.
0: Yes, and and you've also taught me about listening, because I remember um, being in one of your workshops back in the early 90s um, uh, when I heard about active listening for the first time, and it was a very um, profound experience. And so I... Yeah, so I'm. I'm interested. You, you've, you're passionate about values. You're. A, you have your own organization, values-based education, um, and you're a leading light in the world of values, um, values-based leadership in school leadership and values-based education. Where did that interest in values come from?
1: That is a question i often ask myself i um sounds rather glib but i don't think i chose values i think values chose me mm. um i think you know in those early days with grandma um she she stirred something up in me um that was quite profound um I then uh, you know was always interested in why human beings behave in the way that they they, they, they do. What is it that drives their their behavior? Um, I, in the uh, when I was studying at school, I was interested in in religious education and those sort of that side of uh, spirituality. And uh, I remember at uh, when I was training to be a teacher. I also uh, was interested in that area and uh, qualified uh, in that area as well as several others. And at the same time as when I was studying to be a teacher, I uh, was influenced by a number of of wonderful people. I I remember a philosopher called Peter MacPhail. Peter MacPhail really uh, deepened my capacity to think. because he was challenging, but he, he too had this wonderful capacity to to make relationships. I'll never forget Peter. He was an incredible character. He was um, in a wheelchair because he had been struck down by polio, and um, but that didn't hold him back. He was the, the most incredible influence, and so you know, all, lots of small experiences <clears throat> sort of got to me. I. Um, as a as a young person, too, I was uh, involved. I loved drama. and uh, the one thing I was good at at school was uh, drama and being in school plays and things like that. Um, and uh, I joined amateur dramatic societies and things. and and that gave me uh, time to sort of reflect on the human condition. It's interesting when you are uh, having to play someone in Shakespeare or whatever, you it really makes you, think about the human condition. And so bit by bit, I started to think about uh, uh, what is it that drives behavior. And I started more and more to come across uh, this sort of notion of of values. And I was thinking, uh, you know, values and beliefs, Where where's the interaction? Inter... Where are they together or are they apart and uh, what drive why do some people behave in the way they, they do and others don't? And I came to the conclusion that it's uh, the values that we have in life that actually guide our thinking and behavior. and those values form mindsets and those mindsets lead to our choices and our choices then lead to our character. And the character then leads to our destiny in life. Um, and, you know, whilst playing around with those sort of concepts, I, I suddenly realized that, gosh, you know, values are really, really important. Um, whilst I was in in uh, one part of my career, I was uh, near the Global Retreat Center, which is was run by the Brahma Kumaris in Oxford. And uh, someone said, Neil, you know, they talk about values. You might find it interesting to go to their Thursday night talks. So, I started going to those talks. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, that deepened my thinking and opened my thinking. Um, I never became a Brahma Kumaris, but uh, I've always thought them to be uh, a wonderful repository of of wisdom. Um, And so... You know that those sort of experiences, and and lots of others. I am fortunate to have met lots of people, and uh, I, I worked uh, as a student at, at Oxford, and um, my professor there, Professor Richard Pring, uh, was profoundly uh, influential in guiding the way I think about values, and really. Uh, he helped me realise, you know, that underneath everything are the values. And therefore, you know, my passion for values uh, just doesn't stop. It just grows and grows and grows. And, uh, you know, thank you for saying what you did about me. You know, I'm very interested at the moment. I'm very honoured to have been invited to to be a a small part of a working group that's working towards the G20 summit in November. And um, I am writing a a, a small contribution about ethical leadership and uh, ethical intelligence, and how this world, Stephen of ours, if there's one gift I'd like to give to the world, it's ethical intelligence. That ability to morally self-regulate your own behavior. Notice I say self-regulate. A lot of philosophies and dogmas in the world don't encourage self-regulation, they impose a regulation. Uh, But I'm encouraging ethical um, intelligence, which gives people access to developing this profound wisdom of ethical uh, intelligence. And the route to that is uh, an understanding and a practical application uh, of values. For instance, courage. Helping children to really understand what that means. Aristotle said courage. If you look at courage, think of the, the mean of courage, the middle way. He was always talking about the golden mean. So you look at courage and you'd help children say, well, what if you don't have enough courage, what sort of person you are? And they say, oh, we'd be a wimp, a coward. I say, yeah, and what if you have too much courage? What are you then, oh, foolhardly, reckless and all that. So, so how, how today, how are you going to live your life? What are you practically going to do to be co- courageous? And you get a great discussion going with young children or with adolescents, you know, and you are making them values-aware.
0: And giving giving them a a vocabulary.
1: Giving them the ethical vocabulary, that's Mm. right. Which I think could create a narrative for humanity. We desperately need a new narrative. Can you imagine, Stephen, the world leaders, uh, Messrs. Trump, Johnson, and all of them, if they were actually held to account for ethical intelligence and were required to speak from... Um, that sort of ethical vocabulary. Um, We'd have a different world. The big issues of the world, climate change, food, water, um, all those, um, you know, all the waste, and all those deep problems and issues, which uh, the COVID situation now that we're talking in 2020 when we're all worried about the pandemic. But in in one sense, that, that emphasis on COVID is masking some of the other issues the deeper issues the values issues that have led to covid i believe mm-hmm. that all the issues that we're facing actually are values driven so would we have had covid if we were treating the natural environment the wild animals uh, if they were being treated uh, in a in a proper way uh, mm-hmm. so all the issues come back to values, and that's why I think in the boardroom, um, in the company, in the business, in the school, values should be high priority. But what disturbs me, Stephen, is that often uh, people I speak to in industry say, Yes, Neil, we have our values, we have them on the wall, you know, in the entrance hall, you can see our values, you know, don't worry us with values, you know, we've had we bought in someone for. $500 million dollars to talk about values, so we've done that. Um, so, But when you walk around their institution, you, you don't see the values being lived. And that's mm-hmm. a crucial issue. It's not talking about values. It's living the values. Uh, I helped found something called Living Values a number of years ago. And we felt that that was the right title because it's, it's not about talking, it's about being... And Stephen, the last thing I said before you talk again is that values is not easy. It's, mm. Sometimes people say, oh, it's fluffy and, you know, it's not in at all. It's it's really challenging because I often say when I give talks, put up your hand if you are the perfect person. And <laughs> I had one guy put up his hand and I said, why are, you, why are you putting up your hand? Why do you think you're perfect? And he said, oh, my mum says I am. <laughs> Uh, But the truth, Stephen, is that we're not. You know, I'm not, perfect. if my wife was in the room with me now, she'd give you lots of instances. So Mm. having values doesn't mean that you're at the end of a journey. It is that you are on the journey. You're on the wave of change, but you are reflecting on it. And bit by bit, day by day, you are on a journey of self-improvement for yourself and for the good of humanity.
0: It's lovely, and and I think it's a lovely connect uh, around values and its connection with the wave of change, and and I think that there's a there's a lot to unpack in in what you just said, and and uh, one of the things that I liked was just going back a bit was how the role of the arts helped you in getting some perspective around the importance of values and. Mm. And, and how important do you think it is to include that playful uh, part of conversations and discussions and working on values for both organisations and within the classroom? Well,
1: I think it's so, so important. Um, going back to, to what I was saying about, you know, being on the cognitive side of, of thinking, um, if, if everyone can think of a circle, um, and in the circle are sk- skills and knowledge, that's a really big circle, and by the side of that big circle is a little circle, and the little circle has in uh, dispositions, values, wisdom, the affective domain. And it's a little circle. And I say that in businesses, the school curriculum, life in general, we see those two circles. And, and now if you think of those circles, if, if you're a person and instead of a, the two circles, you've got two legs and you've got a little leg and you've got a long leg. And if you start walk, walking, what happens? You actually walk around in a circle. And that's what humanity is doing. It's walking around in a circle and getting nowhere. Now, imagine a world, instead of the two circles as I described, but two equally sized circles, and they're overlapping. And so you have the skills and knowledge, and you have the dispositions and wisdom and values. And an organization is run, you know, your business is run in that way. What happens to the people then? Instead of going round in circles, they've got legs of equal length. So they go in a straight line and they are developing. They're taking the organization forward. They are reflective. They're, they're action people as well. And your organization will then be founded on good principles. The relationships it will work better, etc. These are the thoughts that I'm taking to G20 because I think that's why the world is out of balance. It hasn't got a moral perspective. And I'm using the word moral. It's an unpopular word to use. One could use ethical instead. But I do think we do need to think about how humanity can act in a more moral way. And by moral, doing the right thing for our planet and for our children's futures. And I think that's the challenge. So I do invite... uh, anyone who is listening today to really think about the size of those two circles in their own life and in their workplace. Because I think if you do concentrate in that sort of way, you could change your organisation for the better.
0: Thanks, Neil. And I think that uh, from today's podcast, people will have a lot to think about and be inspired to think of ways in which they can incorporate values uh, into their life, but also how to have conversations uh, within their organisations, within their teams. And and just on closing, what's one uh, tip that you could give our listeners on what's one small step that they can do to increase the values awareness within their team or within their organisation? The one
1: tip... Um... yeah the one tip i would say um is i have to watch this one in myself change being critical if you are critical um then criticism sets up all sorts of emotions in other people uh, change that to being curious being curious but as an organization say so yeah, i'm really curious about why we're doing it in this way uh, using your language being more aware of how language actually sets up uh, responses in people Um, there is language that is developmental and inspiring and creative and other uses of language which can actually inhibit development and and tone of voice how you how you speak to people Um, just little little tiny things like that, thinking of the language, being curious about things, thinking about your tone and lastly, the tip I would give any leader is that before you have any important meeting or any interaction, you may have been on the phone for ten minutes or something talking to people and then some you're about to see someone that's going to be really important. Before you do, take one minute to go inward, internally into yourself and calm your internal world. Calm it down. And the way to calm it down is just to breathe deeply. Breathe really deeply, just for a minute. And you will find just simply doing that, get into the habit of it. The habit of that will help your business, your environment more than anything, because you will be accurate in what you then say. You will be actually speaking from your authentic self rather
0: than any of your sub-personalities. So those are my tips for today, Stephen. Wow, Neil, you've got me smiling um, from ear to ear. Uh, <laughs> it's just a, um, you know, a smorgasbord of goodies that you've given us today uh, about living a more authentic life. Uh, your stories from around the waves and the wave theory um, and the different different parts of the journey of your life. So uh, we thank you so much for joining us on the Waves of Change podcast.